0: Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. A little late this week getting out the podcast. Not for a terrible reason, good reason. I actually was out most of the day and was at the Los Angeles Cathedral for the opening mass of a jubilee year according to the scriptures a jubilee year is celebrated every 50 years celebrating god's mercy his salvation and it coincides with 250 years of faith the catholic faith in los angeles and the very first church in los angeles the san gabriel mission for the archdiocese then there was a nice unexpected lunch in chinatown i hadn't been there since I retired, or before I retired over a decade ago, and then I had an errand to run. By the time I got back here, it was after five o'clock, and I hadn't begun this, and was still distracted by other issues. So, it's late. I'm going to try to do it still on a Saturday, and have it posted before midnight. Just another acknowledgement of the day, that it has been the 20th anniversary to the day of the attack on the World Trade Center in New York by Islamist terrorists, which killed 3,000 people of various backgrounds, ages, and cultures. Eternal rest, grant unto them, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. May they rest in peace. Amen. And also, we should remember the many people who, seeking to rescue those who could not be after such a vicious attack, and to find bodies so that they could be given proper burial, they developed illnesses and therefore have died themselves in the years intervening from that day. What we fat and happy Americans would call collateral damage. It's not the subject of this podcast, but personally, I don't think 20 years has made Americans wiser. If anything, as a nation, our self-indulgences have become legion and our memory of history before the day we are currently living in nil but that of course is the overpowering shadow of sin and the capacity of evil from which god sought seeks to liberate us require us to fight our concupiscent and violent inclinations i take it back maybe in a way this day naturally coincides with today's subject so here's what happened to generate it it's about who is a saint but kind of in a reverse who is a saint whose life was not merely sinful but, well, now to put it bluntly, was truly evil. A friend called me during the week having watched, I think she said, uh, a program on Eternal Word Television Network about St. Paul. She was earnest. One of the things I like about her is that we can have these really, really intense and good conversations of a sort that there aren't many people with whom... I have found I can have them, maybe a handful over my life. Not that I'm claiming any great brilliance on the behalf of either of us, although she's quite smart. But it's about what people will tolerate talking about. And I guess sometimes the things we talk about are not the stuff of (laughs) dinner conversation or cocktail parties. Maybe it's just that we have this sensitivity somehow in our family lives and in our histories that make us think about these things. I'm not claiming any prideful aspect about this. It's just, it is what it is. And in some ways, it's nice to find somebody else that you can indulge this side that that I suppose some might call gloomy. To me, I guess, to my friend, they are compelling. We just can't help thinking about them. And maybe as is true for all sorts of people who think about these things, the answers aren't always satisfactory because we're human and there's so little we can see beyond this sort of foggy place in which we live. I mean, morally foggy. So anyway, she was earnest in trying to sort something out since having watched this program uh, as a saint, St. Paul is someone looked to as a model of heroic virtue up to and including martyrdom his life's behavior before his early life, prior to the conversion on the Damascus Road. A mighty conversion, though it was, Paul was not just sinful, but he was murderously so. I'm not clear on this, but I thought my friend understood him to have committed more than one murder. The only death I understood him to be directly related to, at least from the New Testament, was that of the proto-martyr, the first Christian to die In defense of the new faith Stephen st. Stephen and although he apparently I mean Paul apparently egged on the crowd and watched over their cloaks and very much hated the new religion he didn't actually throw any of the stones that killed Stephen one thing for certain is that Paul was in a fury about these Christians to him the idea of a Messiah this Messiah Jesus was an anathema he rebelled so strongly He sought the destruction of as many as he could, capture and imprison. He caused many to be dragged away, as it says in the New Testament, to their deaths. Hear him tell it in the New Testament. It was after he had been arrested in Jerusalem. So this is from Acts at 21, paragraph 37, and moving on as paul was about to be brought into the barracks he said to the tribune may i say something to you and he said do you know greek are you not the egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the four thousand men of the assassins out into the wilderness paul replied i am a jew from tarsus in cilicia a citizen of no mean city i beg you let me speak to the people and when he had given him leave paul standing on the steps motioned with his hand to the people and when there was a great hush he spoke to them in the hebrew language saying brethren and fathers hear the defense which i now make before you and when they heard that he addressed them in the hebrew language they were more quiet and he said i am a jew born at tarsus in cilicia but brought up in this city at the feet of gamaliel educated according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for god as you all are this day i persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brethren, and I journeyed to Damascus to take those also who were there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I made my journey and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? and i answered who are you lord and he said to me i am jesus of nazareth whom you are persecuting now those who were with me saw the light but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me and i said what shall i do lord and the lord said to me rise and go into damascus and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do and when i could not see because of the brightness of the light. I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And after that moment, he was not the same ever again. In fact, he was no longer Saul. He was Paul. I suppose in a way you could say he became another person. He was transformed. He was changed. My friend asked me, how can we, us ordinary people, not theological experts, really accept such a man who did such awful things, that this man is a saint. Saint, at least the way we've always kind of been taught it, means something very extraordinary. No, not just purely extraordinary, because you could say that Paul's life was extraordinary, but holy, a special holiness. How even if you accept that he really, really, really changed, can you look to such a man as a model having done things that were so beyond the pale of what most of us see as sin or even do as sin though we are all sinners you can forgive yes but to have the church make such a person a model for us to pray to as a friend intercessor with god what he did before was just too ugly, too horrible for us to see him as anyone to look to as a figure of sainthood. And there aren't there just some acts in our lives, in, in other men's lives, such that the church calling someone a saint is not merely incredible, as in not credible, particularly where there have been people who never did such heinous acts, as did St. Paul before his conversion who never are known, let alone get such an official designation, certainly true or better models of cooperation with God and his grace than someone like Paul. I have to admit, I wasn't entirely prepared to provide a meaningful answer, not only because I'm certainly no expert on matters of how saints are declared in any detail. I did read a book once uh, a few years ago called Making Saints, and that book, if I remember, had a that was a bit skeptical of church saint making, suggesting that it was more political than anything else. And I can't say that if you read the history of the church, that is, as led by human beings, certainly it is not impossible. It is very credible indeed that there has been politics, notwithstanding their consecration in the church hierarchy, a painful reality of the past and of current history is that they often behave badly and cannot always be trusted in the decision-making. It's not beyond reason, let alone emotion, to question why a certain person was made a saint for public veneration with the assertion that this person is in heaven. A second reason for my discombobulation at the question was that I was not doing anything particularly intellectual at that moment. I was watching a British police mystery show, Midsummer Murders, and my mind definitely was not on even vaguely religious topics. And while I appreciate the importance of St. Paul, neither he nor the early martyrs are my preference for favorite saints. I go for the Newmans, the Sheens. Talk about a politically tainted cause for canonization and an unfair one, in my lay opinion. Someone else like uh, Elizabeth Lesseur, Teresa of Avila, people with lives which have some parallel to mine in that they were ordinary dramas of their time, if, if that makes any sense. But I tried to respond, and in a way, I hadn't thought about how hard it would be for us to look at someone who had had such a horrible background as a saint, no matter what changes they had made later in life. So I sort of said, I think, that Paul was the perfect imperfect person for Jesus to make his instrument. Jesus took this impossibly, intransigent, despicable zealot against him, a sinner par excellence, and this is who he transformed and transfigured. If you could do it to this person, if this person could change, you could say that God made him an offer he couldn't refuse, although, as is true of all of us, we can always refuse but here's a man who was so far gone and he did not refuse it might have been a little harder for paul to refuse because of the extraordinary almost explosive way that he caught his attention you could say that it would have been insane for saul turned paul to have refused jesus christ at that moment and then this man chosen and remade by God, almost single-handedly brings the Christian faith to the known world, and then he is martyred, having heroically spread the faith and maintaining that faith unto his very last breath. And still I was understanding my friend's problem, even while I was speaking, that the problem is to look to this man as a figure of ultimate goodness, the kind that one feels an aspiration toward, God used him to a great purpose, but how do I, little me or little you, look to him with any degree of of what? Of confidence, particularly when all of us, you and I, have known people who from their very beginning to their very ends were servants quiet and steady of God. It seems unfair, or at least at first glance, odd. Why not somebody ordinary who just lives a good life. Why these, these sort of melodramas. I went about looking quickly, if you will, into the saint-making process to see if anything specifically addressed the, the feeling of incongruity. Well, my friend didn't say it was a feeling. I think she was saying it just doesn't make a sense to say that this person with a partially horrible life, though he becomes good, should be raised over someone who lives a uniformly good life. In the formal iteration of sainthood, those were denominated saints officially, who in heaven are part of the community of saints because we're all called to be saints. They pray with us and for us that we will abandon sin and be God's full and exclusive servants. The first thing to note is that there are some like 40,000 saints out there, many you and I have never heard of. In the early days of the church, there was no formal designation or investigation. There was no canon law per se. Many would be designated saints by acclamation of the people or, as time went on, the local bishop. The process we Catholics are more aware of is long and arduous, though. A couple of popes have recently streamlined the complexity, presumably to offer us ordinary Catholics much-needed immediate sources of models during yet another crisis in the secular and in church history. And this final conclusion is that this person is surely in heaven with God, our intercessor, and can be generally and publicly venerated as a model for our lives in conquering sin. In the early days, martyrdom was a pretty sure shot to sainthood, as time has worn on, leading an heroic life of virtue so that it opens the way, in my thinking, for those of us living relatively quietly and without persecution or violent death while defending God's name. In the more formal sense, the quick summary would be the first step after an investigation, if all the information and the documents are good enough about this person's life, the Pope issues a decree saying that the person led a virtuous life and is venerable. The second step, with a miracle confirmed after a detailed investigation, and the miracle has to be such that nothing natural or scientific explains it, the person becomes a blessed. Now, in the case of a martyr, you can be exempted from the miracle. Third, a second miracle allows the person to be named a saint. The idea is that the person is now a role model for the rest of us as witnesses and followers of Christ in whose name we can follow and imitate. I found this book by Thomas Crowell. I'm not sure I'm saying his name right. It's uh, C-R-A-U-G-H-W-E-L-L called saints behaving badly, the cutthroats, crooks, conmen, and devil worshippers who became saints. Some he detailed, I already knew of, and you would know of, St. Matthew, the tax collector, whereas Crowell points out, wasn't just like the IRS, but basically extorting money from the poor, not only for the nation, but for himself. St. Dismas, who died with Christ as one of the two thieves, the good thief, St. Augustine, the wild and woolly father of an illegitimate child named Deodatus, Thomas a Becket, friend of Henry II, and also a wild and woolly playboy before turning the tables on Henry II and defending the church unto death, St. Olga, one I'd never heard of, who really was a documented mass murderer, though, like everyone, she rationalized it as a good, and St. Vladimir, who killed his brother, raped, and engaged in human sacrifice. All, according to either history or legend, changed their ways completely in human terms against all odds, but in God's terms, there is no impossibility. And he offers sainthood to every single one of us. That's what these stories, true or partially true or a legendary tell us, that he will pursue us to the end of our time and through our most vile sins to bring us to him to perfect us to make us perfect where we were imperfect maybe the way to look at those really troubled people who became saints is in the aggregate don't be like judas who thought his sin was too great that he could not be cured be forgiven be reformed but like saint peter or since we were, my friend and I, talking about St. Paul, being like St. Paul, who literally became a different person in Christ. God shows us a mercy that we are not capable of showing to one another, I suppose. This little book by Thomas Crowell had an introduction that points out something about how saints, including some with questionable backgrounds, are often depicted. And that kind of creates the problem for us because a lot of times the stories are of a kind of two-dimensional goody two-shoes so that being holy seems rather easy to achieve or in a sense being holy is something you have to be from the very beginning in order to be a saint or that's the should of it and as I said the complication is that we both know people who for most of their lives as far as we can tell were devoted to God. Real human beings, certainly, but without the drama of murders and pillaging and theft in their backgrounds. Why not look more to them for the declaration of sainthood? And we have some of those too, the Therese's of the Little Flower, the St. Therese's of Calcutta, the Elizabeth Van Seton's, the St. John Bosco's. We have them. We actually have, when you think about it, the entire spectrum of human frailty and goodness and potential goodness and the combinations thereof and because this is whole spectrum out there there is a real hope that all of us no matter who we are can also join them in heaven this is what Thomas Crowell says in his opening his introduction every day all day long God pours out his grace upon us urging us coaxing us to turn away from everything that is base and cheap and unsatisfying and turn toward the only thing that is eternal perfect and true that is himself what is a saint a saint is a person who tries to imitate jesus christ who strives to practice the virtues to a heroic degree lots of people are good and some people around us show glimmers of saintliness from time to time But a man or a woman whose entire life, all day, every day, is devoted to self-sacrificing good works and intense periods of conversation with God, commonly known as prayer, these individuals are rare indeed. Most of us will never know a saint. And then there's this, he says, A conversion experience is not magic. It is only the first step in a lifetime of striving to avoid the old sins, grow in virtue, and conform one's unruly, rebellious will to the will of God. But in my perusal of different articles and things of that nature, in trying to get a handle on the problem that my friend has and that I really understand, is this from a book called Catholicism for Dummies. And this is the first line that I think kind of works for me. The Catholic Church believes that saints are ordinary and typical human beings who made it to heaven and my addition would be that the naming of saints has been as i said earlier all over the board people who were very good pretty much all of their lives like the young man carlo acutis who's now blessed carlo acutis but he only lived to 17 or so so he didn't have a whole lot of time to really mess up or someone like saint paul so i guess if you happen to be a murderer in prison who is hearing the call of God, not a Damascus call perhaps, strictly, but you've been introduced to Christ and you go in that direction, the Catholic Church says you are not lost if you throw away all your will and turn it over to God. For such a person whose life experiences in no way match mine and in no way attract me, even my sympathy, can be looked to, that person can be looked to, like a Saint Paul, or perhaps the killer of Maria Goretti could be looked at as a resource. He's not been named a saint, but there's been talk of his being a saint. His name is Alessandro Serenelli. I have a hard time with that. He did a horrible thing to that young girl, and yet he turned his life around. Some say he did this most despicable deed and was in time converted, and could one day be named a saint. That's a little hard to take, isn't it? A little easier it would be, in the case of say of Saint Paul, as he spent the remainder of his life preaching Christ crucified, such that the Catholic Church became known to the whole world through two thousand years. That's big stuff, kind of overcomes a lot, but that such a person's acts can coexist with the idea of sainthood, it seems to us incongruous. I see we see holiness as a kind of standalone state one is either holy or it is not holy perhaps as all of this seems to show it is truly a journey this holiness less dramatic for some than for others holiness is for the most part a becoming you know of my appreciation for Flannery O'Connor those who have listened to the program but I realize It is only recently that I appreciate her horrible stories of horrible people because they show grace being offered when men and women are at their absolute worst. I was always repelled by the idea that grace permeates even to the most despicable places and to the most despicable people. I read something somewhere that it's a good slogan. You are God and I am not. As I said earlier, God shows us a mercy at all times that we're not capable of toward one another. There may be few human beings who are. That's why the prodigal son is such an amazing story because we've all been both the prodigal son and the good son. How resentful are we when someone who is absolutely useless or mean spirited gets ahead or gets forgiven? We can't take it. it just doesn't seem right. But again we always have to fall back on the fact that you are God and I am not. It's not necessarily the most satisfying answer. And maybe the trick is that faith helps us stop insisting on being satisfied with the right answer or the answer we think is right. One thing my friend said about herself that I think she's much better than I am with regard to. She said she understands forgiveness. I have trouble even with that, if I were to be honest. In the case of St. Paul, I don't actually have any stake in what he did in his life. It's so long ago. But do I embrace a saint like him? No, I don't. My human frailty makes it hard, if not impossible, to overlook his worst behavior but he doesn't stand in the communion of Saints for me necessarily the thing is that having become holy each of them is available for every human being who seeks true conversion from every depravity big or small maybe I need to look at the Saints as potential friends, as I would here, people of like mind or common background or common problems, common anxieties, common sins, specific sins, and pray for their intercession that the same kind of change that came over them because of God's grace, that I will accept the change because of God's grace, will happen to me as it did to each of them. Then in a way it makes more sense that there's the same panoply of saints in heaven as there are those of us on earth seeking to be saints. If there were no saints like Saint Paul with their particular histories, then so many of us would potentially be lost because there would be no hope of a change, of a transformation, of getting to heaven. So. We need men like St. Paul. Well, I'm not sure that I'm entirely satisfied with this entire explanation, such as it was. Nonetheless, I've tried, and I'm just going to keep praying on it. So I hope you enjoyed it, and I've got it done before midnight, and I'm going to post it right now. So I hope you're listening. I hope you continue to listen. And I hope you enjoy the program. And, you know, if any of you have suggestions about things we can talk about, I can talk about, it's not we, it's just me, (laughs) Um, or maybe someone you know that might be an interesting interview, why don't you put it in the comments and have a good week.